I'm not, I'm not going to enforce it, but I'm going to suggest it, that it's, it's totally an option. And I'll leave maybe 10 seconds now for anyone who wants to move. I won't look. Yeah. <laughs> I got one. I got one. All right. Okay. Why don't you grab a Bible if you're, um, if you're able to, and we will turn to Romans chapter 11 today. This is going to be our last time in the book of Romans for a little while. It's a great passage. It's a really exciting passage. It's a shame that so many people um, are away for it, but it makes a beautiful end. A beautiful end. I got more! Yes! <laughs> they come for my sermon. All right. The... The, it, it makes beautiful punctuation mark um, for the end of what we've been doing in Romans 9 through 11. Let's have a read, starting in verse 33. We'll have it up on the screen if you want to read it that way as well. The Apostle Paul writes, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways! For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been His counsellor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Is that not a great text? How exciting is this? Um, there is not just a sermon in here. There is a whole sermon series, I reckon. This is rich worship fodder. Just look at verse 36, just for a second. Just this one verse of the Bible, which talks about our God, from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. That is giant. That is absolutely immense in what it is saying. From him. It comes from him, through him. It's returning to him and to him, for him, are all things. Which things exist from and through and to our God? Everything. I mean, I just, just, I'm thinking on just, just this one thing this week that what comes to my mind is um, these images that have been coming to us from the space telescope, you know, these things that we've been seeing on the internet all week. Those aren't stars. Those are galaxies. How many, how many, how many stars are there in a galaxy? All of that <laughs> is from him and through him, and to him, and to his glory. Isn't that incredible? Just in, in that one, there's a sermon in there. We'll, we may come around and actually just do this as a sermon series again later on. Um, it's so exciting. This is such a fitting, and we get the distraction off the screen now so that people can hear. Um, this is such a, a fitting end to what we have been encountering in the book of Romans, and in 9 through 11 in particular. Why is that? Because this is the right way to do theology. This is the right way to do theology. When, when I say that word theology, what is it that comes to your mind? There is a definite group of people for whom that word has quite a negative meaning. Theology. Um, for some, the word theology, all on its own, conjures to mind images of stale and stern academics doing their best to rob the joy out of everybody else's life because that's what academics do. Or perhaps for you, it carries the, the stench of, of conflict and division and church splits and strife and arguments. Um, and the shame of all of that really is the fact that theology simply means knowing God. Knowing God. 
That's what that word is for. And while that can be a deep and confusing pool to swim in, it is absolutely necessary for us to grow as believers that we would increase in the knowledge of the one in whom we believe. How do we draw close to God if we don't know who he is? How do we know if we are succeeding and growing and maturing if we don't know what that destination looks like? And if that's what that word means, where does this negative reaction come from? Surely, it has at least something to do with the fact that there is a wrong way to do theology. It really is. There is a way to take theology and to make it spiritually distasteful. The reason why that word conjures up images of stale and dead intellectualism is because there are people who have explicitly used theology for that very purpose, to create stale and dead intellectualism. The, the arguments and the disagreements that theology creates are, at times, necessary. Truth really does need to be defended. We see this in the life of Jesus. He is, he is ready to contend for the truth against wrong ideas about who God is. The gospel must be understood and defined and defended, lest we lose it. And yet also, some have used theology to in, indulge in our fallen nature's desire to crush and to dominate others in a self-centered way. The letter of James in the Bible informs us that the devil himself has a very good grasp on theology. We see him in the beginning of the book of Job, rock up in the throne room of heaven. He has a knowledge of who God is, but that knowledge hasn't done him much good, spiritually speaking, I think we could argue, right? So there's a wrong way to do it. Knowledge about God does not automatically turn into spiritual maturity and fruitfulness. Knowledge about God doesn't automatically turn into spiritual maturity or fruitfulness. And yet, to avoid theology altogether is likewise disastrous, isn't it? In order to function in the life of faith, you need to know who God is and what he wants from you. And there is an approach to the life of faith which looks at the, the tragedy of stale, dead factism, looks at dead theology, and decides that theology itself was the problem that created that, and thus actively tries to avoid it. Have you come across this? People who try, try to do um, Christianity divorced from theology. The problem with that is that if you aren't getting the answers to life's most important questions by wrestling deeply through how God has revealed himself in the word, you are going to get those answers from somewhere else. And in this postmodern age, the tendency is to look within, is it not? What do, I, what do I think God is like? What is my perspective? What has been my lived experience? The God people find by this method is surprisingly consistent. Uh, Voltaire said, if God has made us in his image, we have returned the favor. The, the God of my imagination tends to be what some call the, the, the God in the mirror, where your concept of God is basically just an idealized version of yourself. This is an easy trap to fall into. The God of my imaginings just happens to always side with me on everything, on every issue, and to approve of every one of my desires, and never calls me to change my mind or my behavior in any detail. And, and so, brothers and sisters, there is a mistake to be made 
not in one direction, but in, in both directions when it comes to theology. We want to come to the Bible to see how God has revealed himself, to, to encounter the true and living God, to meet him, to learn about him, but also to, to know him, not know of him, but to know him personally. What's the right way to do that? How, how do we engage with who God is and, and what he has revealed about himself to be true in a way that is edifying and purposeful and sanctifying and joyous? How do we avoid both errors? Both um, the one of stale intellectualism and Pharisaism over here and also ignorance and self-justification over here. What is the difference between the Christian version of knowledge about God and the satanic version of it? What we have here in our passage today is one of the clearest examples that I know of that illustrates the difference. Let's have a think about what's happening here in Romans 11. What, what, has, what has been happening? Let's have a consider. Think back to what we've been doing over the last several months, the last three chapters of this book. Romans 9 through 11 represents some of the deepest, headiest, clearly theological sections of the entire Bible. Is it a, it's, a, it's deep pool. It's complex. It required something of us in order just to read it, let alone understand what God is describing. As we looked into this deep pool, it's been looking into you. What have you experienced spiritually as we made our way through these chapters of the Bible? For example, has your mind and your understanding of God been increased? These chapters reveal things to us about God that my imagination would never have come up with. If, if Matthew Maloney had written the Bible, this, this, this wouldn't be here. And there'd be more dragons and machine guns. It would be very exciting. <laughs> have you been able to see the connection between the window of understanding that has just been opened for us about who God is and how he governs his world and the day-to-day -day details of your life? Have, have you been able to draw the connections between who God says he is, what, what, what he has shown us about himself, and what happened to you at lunch yesterday? Or has it been more of like a in one ear, out the other sort of affair? Interesting. Learn facts. But once finished, I'll be glad to never think about those things again. What about your heart? What's, what's your heart been experiencing? How have, you, how have you felt during our time together over the last few months? What has it accomplished in your walk with God? Have you drawn near to this God who has been revealing himself to us? Has it increased your worship? Or has it kind of scared you off from him for a bit because he's complex, hard to understand, too big, too scary? What about your life? Has it been transformative in the way that you live? Has it shown you that holiness takes a certain shape, that faith requires certain things of us? Has it made you strong, and bold, and brave, confident that God will deliver on his promises? Or has it been ineffectual? What we get in our passage for today 
is an insight into how writing these words affected the Apostle Paul. Do you get that? What we have been getting in our, what we get in our passage today is an insight into how how writing this passage affected its author, humanly speaking. At some point in time, the Apostle Paul sat down to to write the letter to the Romans. I'm, I'm going to guess it took him more than one day, right? It's 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 pretty deep. He he finished writing Romans chapter 11 and all of the things that it was teaching us, and then he turned to this. Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. We get to see in our passage for today what has been happening on Paul's insights. Because after penning these words of this deep pool, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul can't help himself but explode into praise of the God who he has been teaching us about. That is the effect that Romans 9 through 11 has had on Paul. Just just think about this for just a moment. If the book of Romans is a sustained argument, and it's very logical, isn't it? Each chapter builds on what comes before in a way that isn't true of the whole Bible. This, this is a sustained argument, and these four verses have got nothing to do with the argument. They add nothing, rationally speaking, to what he has been building. These verses don't need to be here. Right? If, if, if we were to take these four verses and to cut them out of our Bible, the book of Romans would still be true. Its message would remain almost unchanged. This is optional, in a sense, isn't it? And yet, <laughs> it is not optional. We can be so glad that this is here because it demonstrates to us the right way to learn about God that avoids both staleness and shallowness. Peering into eternity, peering into God's sovereign purposes and election and providence. There are so many unanswered questions. Most of them probably unanswerable. The Apostle Paul has been teaching us what has been revealed to him. And his conclusion is, God is amazing. (laughs) I adore the God who this describes. How do divine sovereignty and human responsibility sit together? There's a theological question. Paul's answer is, in part, earlier in Romans 9, who are you to talk back to God? That was the hard part of the answer. (laughs) Here's the other side of that answer, Romans 11.33. How do divine sovereignty and human responsibility sit together? Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. The word inscrutable is wonderful. Can't be unscrewed, right? I just cannot, I cannot fathom the depths of the answer to that question, but God can. Does that not make him exciting? Praise is the right response to what we have learned. Praise. God is bigger than me. Isn't that exciting? Do you realize who we have gathered together today to worship, and we dare believe that his presence is here among us. The one from whom, and through whom, and for whom are all things, knows us by name. That's the other part of the answer. I am delighted to learn. I am delighted to learn, says Paul. 
that he is God and I am not. I would be bad at that job, despite the increase in dinosaurs and machine guns. God is using, we've learned in Romans 9 through 11, God is using the hardening of Israel to bring us in, in order to make Israel jealous and bring them in. Really? That's what God's doing in history. That is different to the plan that I would make if I was God. Did you think that at some point while we read that in, in Romans 10 and 11? That is different to how I would have done it. What is Why? Why has God chosen to act in the way that God has chosen to act? And part of the answer is this. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Do you realize that's praise? That's not a criticism. This is delight. God is smarter than us. Isn't that exciting to learn? I don't know about you, but I keep making the same silly mistakes over and over and over again, and somehow my flesh is still confident that I know everything. Are you like me? I'm so glad that God is different to us. I'm so glad that he is smarter than us. Who has known his mind? He's better than us. Isn't that exciting? And the God who is better than us, we dare believe, is here with us, instructing us and guiding us. He's given us his word as a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Is that not exciting? What this is describing to us is what all of our time in the Bible should be. This is, this is, this is every sermon that you've ever heard. This is every Bible study that you have sat through. This is every day in your own home as you read God's word and pray, you are in reality encountering the God who made all things. He is showing himself to you. And it is a travesty and a tragedy that we would turn that into mere ideas and facts and be content to have our mind alone shaped. And it would be an appalling loss if we were to ignore what he has shown us and fail to learn anything at all. The right response, the only appropriate response to when God reveals himself is worship. Is worship. This is the difference between stale intellectualism and a transformative encounter with God. This is what is so much better than the God of my pathetic imagination Brothers and sisters, I've decided we're going to market this. This is how we become a mega church in the 80s. Okay? Um, I've, got a, I've got a sales pitch for you. I'm going to show you a thing today. Um, and when I show it to you, you can know that you saw it today. Before it took the world by storm. And we were all in on it before it was cool. Are you ready? This is, this is how I'm going to become the purpose-driven pastor of the next 20 years. Worshipology, right? <laughs> Where theology meets worship. It's a new word. We're going to get on it. I'm going to write a book. The book will be called Worshipology, if you haven't picked up what I'm putting down. When knowledge becomes an encounter with God. Right? Thank you, David Wicks, for finding out how to put the TM in there. I couldn't do it. When knowledge becomes an encounter with God, it's a different kind of knowledge. It's a different kind of knowledge. This is not the only example of this trend that we read in the Bible. How many times do we see someone encounter the Lord 
and be radically transformed simply by meeting him in the word. Think about it. Think about Job. Job has a bunch of questions for God. 37 chapters of them. They aren't just head questions, they're heart questions. Because Job is going through the depths of human suffering. And his questions for God basically boil down to, Why? I don't like this. 37 chapters of questions for God, and all his friends have got to offer him are the wrong answers coming from their head and of no help to him. But then at the end of the book, God appears to Job and starts answering him. They're not easy answers. They're deep answers. They're hard answers. (laughs) I'll, I'll read it to you from Job 38, starting in verse 1. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you will make it known to me. Where were you, Job? Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or or who stretched the line upon it? Or or what were its bases sunk? Or, Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together, all the sons of God shouted for joy. It goes on like this for another few chapters. Job, where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? Hey, hey Job, does the morning obey you and come when you say it should? T- tell me, Job, do you feed the ravens? I do that. This is how God responds to Job. And in a sense, is that answer not brutal for a man who is grieving? Isn't that hard? They're brutal in a sense. And if you were to take that harsh verse from Romans 9, who are you to talk back to God, and to expand it out into a book of the Bible, what you would get is the book of Job. And yet also, do you not see? These these aren't head questions Job is asking. They're heart questions that Job is asking. His suffering is real. His family members are still dead. And God's answers aren't just Head answers, do you see? What God does that is so different to what Job's friends have done is that God answers Job by revealing himself to Job. This is who I am. That is the answer to your question. God himself is the answer to Job's questions. God, why? Why do you do things the way that you do them? I don't like it. Here I am. This is who you worship. God reveals himself to Job. God himself is the answer to Job's questions. And in that encounter with God, as as direct and blunt as it is, Job finds the answers to his greatest need. And his wounds start to be healed. This is where we get Job's beautiful confession from Job 42, verse 1. Where were you, Job, 
Is it you who decides how far the, the sea can come and no further? You know, I'm doing that right now. Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear and I will speak. I will question you and you will make it known to me, said God. Says Job, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear. But now my eye sees you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. You feel it? This is apology. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted, says Job. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given him a gift that he might be repaid, says Paul. It's the same thing. Again and again throughout the Bible, we see these encounters of people who thought that they knew about God, but when they meet him, they are transformed. When they meet him, Another example, let's do it. The Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4. She meets Jesus and she she starts to engage with him in conversation. He starts to engage with her in conversation. But she's engaging with him with her head alone. She knows facts about God. She wants to debate with him about which mountain people should worship God on. But she is keeping... She's keeping her heart away and protected because she's wounded, she's damaged, she's solid goods. Jesus speaks with her, the God who made her, not just to her head, but he goes for the heart. The Samaritan woman said to him, John 4 verse 9, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus had just asked her to draw some water for him from the well. And she says, I'm a woman of Samaria, which means either that she's from the region of Samaria or that she was quite portly. I can't tell which. Because she's a woman of Samaria. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. <laughs> that is not the first time I've been booed in church, and it won't be the last. Jesus answered her, if you knew, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. You feel it? As the encounter continues, she realizes who she's talking to. She she had known about him but now she's met him and something starts to happen in her that mere knowledge alone had not been able to create in all of her life. She's transformed. She comes to believe from the inside out 
in the one whom she has spent a lifetime learning facts about and ignoring. Until she runs off to her hometown, you all need to... I've met a man. <laughs> he knew everything about me, and you need to come and see. You need to come and see. Each time you grab your Bible, each time you reach for this word, each time you open this book, if you only knew who it was that was speaking to you, you would ask him, and he would give to you living water. The same living water that that woman experienced at the well. Lord, rescue us from mere intellectualism and the pitfalls of ignorance. And give us yourself. Right? What we see in Romans 11 is perhaps one of the clearest examples of the difference between lifeless theology and a transformative encounter with God. To finish today, why don't I give you some reflection questions. And as we read this, we're just going to read the text and kind of break it into categories. Why don't you ask yourself this question? Which part of the wonder of knowing God that is being described here is my heart most in most urgent need of? Which of these do I need more of? They're all good. There's no bad answers. We need all of these things all the time. But maybe there's just one of these things that God himself is revealing to you about himself, even now. Through our time in Romans, through our time in the upcoming series. What is God showing me that not just my head, but my heart needs to engage with? For some of you, won't it be these words? Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. Does your heart need to see that God is wise beyond any of us and to find rest in his wisdom? Maybe your heart needs to find rest in the fact that God is beyond your understanding. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. Don't be afraid of that. That's not a thing to be afraid of in, in the sense that we recoil in fear and run away. That's a thing to be loved. If you could understand everything about God, he'd be smaller than you. Of course he's confusing. It's a good thing. Find worship there. Do you need to rejoice that God governs his creation according to the counsel of his own will? Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Do you ever try to be God's counselor? I do it all the time. The, the Apostle Peter did a great job of it. Jesus said, Peter, I'm, I'm going to be crucified when we get to Jerusalem. Peter responds, no, Jesus, it is you who is wrong. You are not going to be crucified. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Does your heart need to find rest 
in the fact that everything that you have from God has come to you by means of grace alone. By grace alone. Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Has, has your heart been tempted to think that the good things God gives you are because you were, you, you were a good boy or girl and you've been obeying the rules? Do you fall into that trap? Or, or, or what, you, know, you know how you know this one's happening too. It's when things go wrong and you start crying out for justice. Where's the justice? I didn't watch Game of Thrones. Why is this happening to me? After all, I sacrificed for him. Apparently, it was a dumpster fire by the end anyway. You've lucked out. Does your heart need to draw near to the God who comes first in all things? Who comes first in all things? Do you need to be reminded in the best of ways, just like Job was reminded, that you are not the center of the universe? Somebody else is. Because from him and through him and to him are all things, and to him be glory forever. Amen. What's God saying to you? How is he showing himself to you? Where does your heart need to join up with your head as you encounter the true and the living God that he would work his wondrous transformation in you? What's he saying to you today? Through his word? Let's pray. Our Father, to learn about you is easier than to meet you. My flesh is capable all on its own of learning facts. I don't need you for that. And yet, as easy as that is by comparison, rescue me from it. Give me the harder thing. Give me the better thing. Show yourself to me that I might know you. Give me eyes to see and ears to hear and faith to believe that you are who you say that you are. Lord, fill me with your spirit and make my heart alive. Give me, in place of this heart of stone, give me a heart of flesh that melts before you in joy and awe and wonder. Lord, my flesh can do self-sufficiency. It's easy to sanctify the desires of my flesh and the norms of my culture the way I've always done things, and to turn them into a pretend God, and to say that you approve of me in every way, just as I am, that's easy. But give me the harder and the better thing. Give me the true and the real thing. Give me you, yourself, different to the God of my imaginings. Better, wiser, holier, larger, inscrutable and incomprehensible. 
yet real and here and mine. Lord, unfold your glory before us. Let us pierce the veil of this broken and dulled reality and see into the eternity of eternities and know the one who calls us. Rescue us. (laughs) Rescue us from intellectual Phariseeism. Rescue us from ignorance and self-righteousness. Meet us. Change us. God, give yourself to me. And give me the faith to receive. We pray these things in Jesus, who is the very image of God. Come to make you known.